The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans again. We'll find our way to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is where we have made our exposition of this great, profound book in the Bible. Romans chapter 4. Follow along as I read the verses we'll be studying this morning to set those in our mind. Verses 13 through 17. Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives to the dead life and calls into being that which does not exist. There's a real and very sense about theology that if you study it for any length of time and at any depth, you'll no doubt run into. One of the joys of my life right now is Wednesday mornings. We have to, uh, together uh, Theology for Breakfast, where we get together at 5.30 a.m., a group of us, a group of us men, and study theology for an hour. And to hear the questions that come back and forth and the answers that are provided amongst the men has been a genuine blessing in my life. But it's very clear in looking at theology, this principle that flows very naturally. Every doctrine in the Bible is inextricably and knowingly connected to other doctrines in the Bible. Said another way, no doctrine stands alone without other doctrines flowing into that doctrine. For example, if you were to take the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that would involve the doctrines of bibliology, Christology, theology proper, soteriology, sanctification. All of those studies of theology have something to do with understanding the Holy Spirit or understanding how he uh, uh, ministers to the life of a believer and even in the conviction of the world. Or the doctrine of providence, for example. To study the doctrine of providence would involve knowing the doctrines of sovereignty and election, foreknowledge, wisdom, omnipotence, and even anthropology. Every time you crack a door to look into a room in the scriptures of theology, it involves so many tributaries that flow into understanding that theological premise. It shouldn't surprise you then that the doctrine of salvation is the same. It may be fair to say that 
Just about every doctrine in the Bible somehow supports our understanding of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, or every doctrine flows from that understanding. The great theme of the Bible is the glory of God. And the glory of God is manifest most specifically in the fact that he has chosen to save sinful men. Well, since the book of Romans explores and understands the book, uh, excuse me, the doctrine of salvation, since the doctrine of God's righteousness and his glory is demonstrated in the book of Romans in the presentation of salvation, it shouldn't surprise you that the more we study the book of Romans, the more theology we will find. The more doctrinal pillars we have to explore, the more wonders of God's doctrine and truth we get to explain. As I said, Romans is about the glory of God's righteousness expressed in the salvation of sinful men, and so we should expect that week after week, week in and week out, we would not only meet a multitude of doctrines, but begin to see how those doctrines fit and flow together. The passage before us is one of those places where we see such a, and I love this word, confluence. A confluence is actually a a, a word that's used of streams or creeks or rivers that come together and become one. Two creeks, two rivers, two streams come together, two individual streams, and once they, they, they flow together, they become something new and something joined. Doctrine is like that. There are many doctrines that involve the confluence of other doctrines that become never any less than they were by themselves, but oftentimes so much more than they were by themselves. And we find that today in our passage where we find the confluence of grace and faith. Now, we've talked about many times over and over and over in our study of the book of Romans that really the book of Romans is the book that fueled the Reformation from Catholicism uh, back during the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. It was the Reformation principles that fueled the English Reformation, Scottish Reformation. And the Reformation cry was really a an organization of theology that they expressed in what we call the solas, right? The solas of the Reformation. Remember these. Sola scriptura, that we believe that authority comes from God's word and that uh, 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 important word, uh, sola, God's word, what? Alone. Sola fide, which means that God grants salvation by faith in him and by faith, what's the word? Alone. Sola gratia, that God grants from his disposition, his royal throne, favor by grace and grace alone. Solus Christus, that Christ is the one who grants salvation to us. He's the Lord, the Savior, and the King, and he is the ultimate authority alone. And then soli deo gloria, that everything is to be done for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God and for the glory of God. What's the word? Alone. All of the solas that were flowing together and flowed from the Reformation were critical. But even Martin Luther himself said that the material doctrine, the material principle, the primary cause of understanding how important salvation is to get right really is built on sola fide, that we are saved by faith, through faith 
alone. Now that was said in a context. Remember, uh, it was in, the, in that uh, dark period in which the Roman Catholic Church ruled so dominantly that you had to come to Christ through them. That salvation was through the church, by the church, under the authority of the Pope. And yet, the reformers cried out, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. Sola fide, then, as we've been studying now for two and a half chapters in Romans, is about the doctrine of justification, what it means to be declared righteous and right and not guilty before God. And it's the primary topic of the book of Romans. How can a sinner be declared guiltless by a righteous God? Now, as I've said for the last few months, we keep hearing this over and over from every angle, illustrated by different people, different men, different doctrine, different scripture. And yet, Paul continues to pound the gavel to make sure we understand that it is so utterly amazing. You heard it sung a moment ago. It is overwhelmingly amazing that God would say, I will declare a sinner, unrighteous as he is, Righteous before me by the simplicity of believing that I have accomplished that work for that believing sinner. It's unspeakably amazing. The doctrine can be summarized with the formula that faith yields justification and faith yields good works. Contrasted with the Roman Catholic formulation that faith and good works yield justification. We've talked about this before. You hear the difference? That our faith produces, yields justification and good works. Not that faith and good works yield justification. Faith and living for the Lord flow because he's regenerated us. You don't do faith and good works in order to earn justification. And again, Martin Luther called this principle, this doctrine, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. That's quite a statement. It makes sense that he would say that because Paul spends more time on this topic than any other topic in the book of Romans where he defines and outlines the doctrine of salvation. Well, here's the deal. This doctrine asserts the total exclusion of any other righteousness to justify a sinner than what the Puritans called, remember our word, alien righteousness, not from Mars, outside of us, from another, from Christ and Christ alone. So Lafide excludes every input that the sinner might put toward his righteousness and puts it all on the glory of God. But the great work of sola fide brings a question into focus that we've hinted at before and really saved to explore until today in this passage. If you've talked to people who are, who are questioning this idea of sola fide, whether God saves by faith alone, you'll no doubt get to the point where someone will say to you, now hang on, you say that God saves by faith alone, right? We would say, yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And they would rightly ask the question, well, isn't believing doing something? And we would say, yes. And they would then say, well, isn't that a work? If God saves by faith alone, isn't faith something you do? Isn't that a work? Then salvation ultimately is by the work of faith. You hear the logic? It's a good question. Paul anticipated that question and answers it in the text before us today. 
How does faith work together with grace? And the verses here in our text today show us how faith is the means of salvation, but grace is the engine behind salvation. It fuels salvation. The whole of chapter 4 we've been looking at for several weeks now is about illustrating and demonstrating that justification is by faith. That you believe something, you don't do something. But someone will say, but isn't believing doing something? Paul knew we would ask that question, and so he answers it. Specifically, we have to nail down the fundamental reality that justification by faith has always been God's means of justification. Never, ever, ever was anyone ever saved by doing something or by works. He's been preaching that for two and a half chapters. Chapter four, he actually uses the illustration of Abraham predominantly and David in a few verses to show, illustrate, picture that even in the Old Testament, no one was ever saved by doing something, but by believing what God did, that he was the one who did something. Now, the first 12 verses of Romans 4 has shown us that justification is not by works, it's not by law, it's not by circumcision, using David as a proof, using Abraham as a proof. And he wants us to remember that Abraham was declared righteous and just, not guilty, long before he was circumcised, long before he did anything, became Jewish. And one of the striking uh, uh, lessons of Romans 4 to the Jew of his day, in fact, is to, is to look the Jew in the eye and say, you, you understand that Abraham was justified, let's use our word, Abraham was saved when he was a Gentile. And that would gasp most people, especially in the, in the Jewish understanding. What do you mean? Well, he was declared Jewish in the sense of being the, the father of the Jews at the moment of circumcision. Chapter 17, we find that. And yet he was declared righteous back in chapter 12 and then illustrated again in chapter 15. And Paul makes that point to say, you, you understand it was by faith with Abraham, not by circumcision, which the Jews had come to believe in the time of uh, the writing of the book of Romans. And he illustrates that, pounds that, and teaches that. Therefore, Abraham is then used as a great father of all those who are justified by faith. Unfortunately, the thinking of the day was that Abraham was the father of the Jews because they had the sign of circumcision and Abraham was circumcised. We studied that in some detail in our last two sermons. Now for the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 13 on, Paul is going to make the point that it is grace that fuels this faith. Because he understands, now hang on, if we're saved by faith, by believing something and not by doing something, but faith is doing something because you're believing something, then where, where's the catch? Paul knew we would ask that. So in verses 13 to 17, we discover how the promise of God to Abraham actually in that ancient Older Testament passage reveals the confluence of grace and faith together. And that confluence still exists today in the salvation of anyone who would believe. Now the emphasis of this section is the driving promise of God. The promise of God to Abraham. Very specific promise. In fact, we should put a parenthesis around the word S. Promise is really promises. He made several promises to Abraham we'll look at in a moment. That word promise we found back in verse 
1 in chapter 1 verse 2 where it was a verb. But this is the first time we find the noun of the promise of God made to Abraham. Well, let's dive into this. Let's look into these, these uh, verses together. And they seem a little uh, complicated at first, but when you understand the simplicity of what Paul's saying, especially with the background of the wrong understanding that someone could be possibly saved by doing something good enough to earn God's favor, it should make some clear sense. Let's find two ways then together that the Abrahamic covenant informs sola fide and sola gratia. That's a big Big sentence, and let me unpack a little bit before we even outline it. The Abrahamic covenant was the promise God made to Abraham about being the father of many nations, the father of a great people. And in that, we find two of our pillars that the Reformation reclaimed, that we are saved by faith alone, and that is only by gratia, by grace alone, that Latin term. Let's look, first of all, at the promise to Abraham in that the promise to Abraham was received by faith by sola fide. He said this before, he's going to say it again, but in some different and clearer terms. For, verse 13, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, he groups them in. Everyone claims that that promise to Abraham is owned by the Jewish nation, by the Jewish people. That he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is a summary statement. There's nothing new here we haven't studied in chapter 3 or in the first few verses of chapter 4. The Jewish understanding was at that time that the purposes and plan of God were isolated by and isolated on the people of God through the law of Moses. God gave the law to Moses on Sinai. That was to to mark off, to demarcate a group of people, namely the Jews. And so to be inside of that group, in that special favored group of God, you had to have and own the law of Moses. Well, that was true in a sense. But as we've already seen, it, to possess the law without living the law is useless. Now let's ask this question. Since the promise was made to Abraham, what? If I were to ask you and, and put you on the spot and say, what was the Abrahamic promise or covenant? What did God actually promise to this man named Abraham, son of Terah, grew up in Haran, but of a nomad, told to move south into a land he'd never seen? What promise did God make to this man? Well, actually, the truth is the Abrahamic covenant is not just one promise. It's several promises. First of all, God actually made a promise that he would have numberless progeny. Remember that? Genesis 12, 12, Genesis 13, 6, Genesis 15, 5, uh, 15, 18 through 21, Genesis 17, 8. All say the same thing. You will have a lot of descendants. He uses some illustrations. They'll outnumber the stars of the sky. Now, that would mean something different for him than us. Go outside in Kansas City and look up, and you'll see a lot of stars. Go out in the middle of Kansas, look up, and you'll see a lot more stars, right? Because Don't you love this word? Because there's no light pollution. Be out in the middle of uh, the plains or out in the desert and pull the car over in the middle of the night and look up indescribable. God said, your descendants are going to be like that. Or, how about this? Ever been to the beach? Even a lake? Picked up some sand 
Imagine trying to spread that out and count every grain of sand. That's just in your hand. God said, your descendants will be like the sand on the beach. The grains, you can't, you can't count them. Numberless. He also made a promise to Abraham that he would possess the land of Canaan. A very specific land, geographical promise. You can look this up in Genesis 12, 12, Genesis 13, 14 to 17, Genesis 15, 7, 15, 18 through 21, and 17, 8, all say, I'm giving you this piece of real estate. Not only did he say that, he said, I'll give this to you, how long? Forever. What, what does that mean? I'm going to give you this forever. A third promise he made is that all nations will be blessed by Abraham and his seed, Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 18, 18, Genesis 22, 18. We'll come back to that in a minute. Every nation will be blessed by my promise to you, Abraham. Now, Paul is making the point here that the promises made to Abraham, get this, will ultimately be fulfilled in those who come by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, and they become the great seed and descendants of Abraham. Now, we, we've heard this. We, we sing this. Father Abraham had many sons, and we Christians sing that. But just, you, you have to get the shock of this. Paul is talking to Jews who had so loved their covenant relationship with God that they thought they were the only ones. And Paul is looking at them and saying, those who believe in Jesus by faith are actually the intended, promised seed of Abraham. This would be just absolute, utter shock to their sensibilities. How in the world, though, if God made those three categorical promises to Abraham, how do we become heirs, that's what it says, of that promise? We're not Jews. Some of us are, if you're a, a Jewish believer, we're so glad you get to fulfill this in every possible sense. How do we become, let's look at the promise, break, break it down. Endless progeny. How can we be the children of endless progeny? Well, Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, speaking of Jesus, to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, listen, men from Every tribe and tongue and people and every, here's our word, nation. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. Does that sound familiar? Numberless. From every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So that promise of blessing every nation was fulfilled by the Great Commission where we're supposed to go to all people. Here's one that trips up a lot of people. What about possession of the land? In what sense does a New Testament Christian... Enjoy the promise of Abraham to possess the land. That's a good question. In some sense, a lot, and in some sense, very little. Let me say, tell you what I mean by that. In the literal, physical sense, this happened to a certain extent in the days of Joshua. 
right? He promised the land. He gave them the land. So there's a sense in which that's already happened in in the, the first chapters of Joshua where they divide up the lands and they go. Remember the book of Numbers where we all, we all we read the book of Numbers and we say, why all these numbers? If you read the book of Numbers, you will find a lot of numbers. And you've got to scratch your head. You go, what is all this about? That is a critical book. Because the book of Numbers and all this numbering, this staging, this is, this is this tribe, how many people are here? This is this tribe, how many people are there? All the way down the 12 tribes was to make sure that this promise could be fulfilled. This is a new group of people standing on the plains of Moab, about to cross the Jordan, go inhabit the land, fulfill the promise of God in inheriting the possessed land of the promised land of Canaan. Well, who goes where and who and how do you know? The book of Numbers is a staging book. Okay, here's who everybody is. When we cross the land, here's where you go. It's very simple. But not only that, in the millennial kingdom, God will send his son at the end of seven years of tribulation to divide nations, sheep, goats, those who supported the Messiah, those who, who supported the Antichrist. He'll divide them up. And then for a thousand year literal reign on this planet, he will tell the Jews, now, all of those promises, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, we're going to enjoy those. And guess who he invites to enjoy those in that land of Canaan with him? The Gentiles grafted in. We're going to get there in chapters 9 through 11. Not only that, remember when Jesus said, blessed are the meek in Matthew 5, 5, because they will inhabit the earth. How about all nations blessed by Abraham's seed? I love this promise. Galatians 3.16. In fact, you can write that out in the margin of this passage. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. I love how Paul tells them it's promises, plural. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather one, and to your seed, that is Christ. In other words, all the seeds of Abraham were going to be, all the descendants of Abraham were ultimately to point to one primary descendant, Jesus the Messiah, Savior of all men. So Paul says an emphatic no to the idea that only in Judaism is the promise to Abraham fulfilled. You could say, and maybe we'll get here someday, that the entire book of Galatians is given to that subject. But again, he goes back to Genesis 15, 6 here in the phrase in verse 13, the righteousness of faith. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The righteousness of faith, not of works, not of doing better, not of trying harder, not of the law, not of circumcision. Righteousness comes through faith. God declares he doesn't infuse us. He imputes to us righteousness because of Christ. And then he says, and to his descendants, this was intended to be a direct reference to the Jewish readers. Look at verse 14. For if those who are of the law, that's the Jews, are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise nullified. Here's what he's saying. No one can be or ever has been an heir of salvation from obedience to the law. We read this morning of the the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. 
who actually thought that? He actually, I mean, can you imagine being asked by Jesus, um, have you obeyed the law? He said, oh yeah, from my youth. Not only have I done that recently, I've always been righteous, I've always obeyed. And so Jesus says, well, you think so? Well, then sell everything you have and go, come and follow me. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he walked away grieved. There's no human who's ever been born who can say to anyone, especially to God, I have fully obeyed what you said, except one man, and that's Jesus. Now he says, the, he talks about made void, the promise is nullified. Here's what he's saying. The promise to Abraham would be nullified, the promise of the righteousness of faith would be nullified because it would be conditional. Can you imagine if God said, I will save you if you obey, and the question becomes, how much? Where, where's the bell curve? Where's, where's, the, where's the, the, uh, the, the grading curve? Where, okay, you obeyed enough, you're in. You disobeyed this much, you're out. Because we already learned back in chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if, verse 14 is basically saying, if anyone was saved by the law, that makes your salvation conditional on your obedience. Can we just all take a deep breath of gospel air and say, praise God that that's not the case? That God doesn't say, I'll, I'll allow you in on, in on the condition that you've obeyed me enough. He goes on to verse 15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. This would have shocked a Jewish sensibility as well. Instead of creating a Jewish system of worship that delighted in the the great fact that God saves by grace through faith, it actually brought the basis of judgment and revealed sin. We're going to get back to this in chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, where he says, the law actually came, are you, get, are you ready for this? The law didn't come as a means for me to obey to get to God. The law came to show me how I should obey and how I don't obey and how I could never obey enough to please God. Law actually brings wrath. It tells us what we're accountable to. Now, if you're a Gentile and you say, ha, then it's much better to not have the law and then we're not accountable to anything. Remember what he said back in chapter 3? Back in chapter 2? The law is actually written on your conscience. No one will ever be able to say, I get a pass. I didn't have the scrolls of the law. Not the case. Robert Mounts, I love the way he says about this. Great Greek scholar. Ironically, the very thing the Jews were counting on to make them acceptable to God turned out to emphasize their sinfulness. That was the law. By trying hard to fulfill the demands of the law and failing, their pious efforts merely turned them into conscious sinners, end quote. That's a great sight. The law was never intended for them to see how righteous they could be. The law was intended to show them how unrighteous they were and how much they needed a Savior. In fact, instead of elevating the Jew to a special status, it actually is the means that shows them they are the exact, in the exact same position as every other Gentile. Guilty before God. Paul's point here is that God 
has always granted his promises through faith and not works. Now, before we end up, remember in Romans 12, he's going to say, don't let the, the ones grafted in look down on the ones who were not grafted in, the Jews. Before we say, ha, those rascal Jews, do you understand that all this illustrates what's actually in all of our hearts? Oh, we may not say that we're saved by the Mosaic law, but haven't you had that little word enough that comes into your head? I need to do enough, try hard enough, read the Bible enough, do whatever enough, then God will accept me. It's the same principle. That's actually all just review. Now he brings that, that's, that's by, we've, we've talked this, salvation is, is, obta- is obtained by faith, by believing. That's one stream, one river that's going to come in. Here's the confluence that we need to look at now. Not only is the promise to Abraham received by faith, now we find out the engine. The promise to Abraham was given by grace. Sola gratia. Verse 16. For this reason, do you, do you mark things in your Bible? Do you circle things in your Bible? Do you asterisk things in your Bible? Please, please note this verse. For this reason, it, salvation, inheriting the promises, is by faith in order that it may be in confluence, in accordance with, working with, what? Grace. In accordance with grace. The power behind justification is God's grace. It's not even anyone's faith. Remember our friend who was asking us, well, hang on. If you say believing is the way you're saved, isn't believing a work? This is the answer to that. Actually, no, because we would have never believed unless God's grace caused us to believe. Turn back to chapter 1. He began the book like this, verse 5. Well, end of verse 1, the gospel of God, verse 3, is, is um, uh, uh, concerning his son, declared the son of God by power, verse 4, resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received, what is it? Grace. Because of Jesus Christ, we have received a gift unearned, unmerited favor from God. You know it well, but hear it in this context. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And he goes on, it's not of yourselves, it is a what? Say it. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Lest you think that you did anything, he says, not as a result of works, so that no man can pound his chest and boast that I did this myself. So understand our nomenclature. Um, Paul actually says we are saved through faith. We are saved by faith, and he means that. What he doesn't mean is we're saved by faith that's outside of grace. Because you could easily say these two sentences, and they would be absolutely true. Listen, we are saved by faith, that's the means that he's given us, and by uh, 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 grace, right? We're saved by faith. We're also saved by grace. Saved through grace, by grace. Saved by faith, through faith. You say, well, which one is it? That's the confluence. 
If you understand what Paul's saying, that's not in competition. The best formulation, though, is what Ephesians 2, 8 says. For by grace, that's what God has done, we have been saved. The mechanism, the means, our part through faith. They come together. Let me make it as simple as I can. No one would ever have faith. No one would ever believe the gospel were it not for the operative divine power and principle of grace that makes them believe. There's an old song that was a uh, decade and a half old that was written by a man who's a contemporary Christian music and a song that I, I loved. It says, I believe in the word of God because he made me believe. Lest anyone say, but I didn't think that that's what Abraham and his promise was about. Uh, what do you mean? It's by grace, it's by faith, it's not by works, it's not by law, it's not by show. I didn't, I didn't think that was what it was about. Verse 17. As it is written, don't you love Paul? As it is written, he's an expository preacher. As it is written, let's go back to the, the source, the standard of authority, God's word, the Older Testament, the Old Covenant. For as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. He goes back to Genesis 17, 5. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude. Maybe the most miss, the most missed, let's say it that, the most missed words in the entire Old Testament in the mind of a Jew is at the end of 17.5 of Genesis. Listen, I will make you the father of, and they inserted the Jews. You know what the text says? I will make you the father of many non-Jews. The word is nations. The Abrahamic covenant had in mind the people of God. It had in mind the church. Remember Revelation, what we just read? Every tribe, tongue, nation, tall, short, black, white, yellow, purple, every, every conceivable human is in the target of the gospel through the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul makes the point. He's basically saying it's so easy for the Jewish nation, Judaism over the centuries, to think that that, that text says, I will make you the father of the Jews. And he doesn't say that. The father of a multitude of nations. Which is exactly why Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 17, is written, a father of many nations I have made you. Even though Sarah and Abraham were physically beyond the years of childbearing, God promised to raise a nation out of Abraham's descendants, though he had no children, so that, here it is, verse 17, the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also 
those who are of the faith of Abraham. Who is, how clear is this, a father to who? Who? To us all. He is a father to us all. That's back in 16, I'm sorry. So, let's back up. Let's make it as simple as possible. He's been saying for a long time, you're saved through the mechanism of faith, and now we find out the reason you, you believe is because God's grace is a gift. Unmerited favor has been bestowed on the mind of a believer who will formulate faith to even affirm that the gospel is true. And that's actually the fruit of the promise of God to Abraham, which was not to be the father of the Jews, but to be the father of many nations. How? Through Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, who calls to himself, Revelation tells us, Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Now, we're going to take part of this verse and reference it, but come back to it. Because this is, this is a seed that Paul is planting in the mind of the readers of Romans. He's going to come back and fully explain. But look at, look at the power of God. How strong is grace? How, how powerful is this grace? He made this promise in the presence of him who he believed, even God. Abraham believed in God. What is God like? Look at these little, uh, little footnotes about God. Who gives life to the dead. Well, we know that Abraham understood that because Hebrews tells us that when he, in Genesis 22, went to kill Isaac, he fully intended to kill his son. Hebrews tells us why. Because he believed that God would raise even the dead. And then he goes back to creation and calls into being that which does not exist. These two phrases are going to be explained further in chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 10. Where he says, how powerful is grace? Well, it could raise the dead, physically and spiritually. How powerful is the promise of God made in grace, received by faith? Get this. God said words, and the universe came into being. Remember the Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created. God didn't wake up one morning. I don't even think he was sleeping. But God didn't start one day, but there wasn't a day. Sometime in eternity past, God didn't just decide, okay, I'm going to take everything on my, my uh, divine cosmic table. Okay, some earth, some water, some space, some stars, some sun. And I'm going to put all that together, and I'm going to make the universe. He did it out of nothing. I would love to explain that to you, but I can't. you got to say, Rick, how does that work? I don't know, except I believe it. There was nothing, and God created everything by his power. And that kind of power that can raise the dead, that kind of power that can call something out of nothing, that's the power that he exhibits and declares and grants and gives to a believer to have faith in the gospel. What does that tell us? Believing the gospel is hard. It's impossible. It's supernatural. 
which is why we pray for the salvation of people we love and know, right? You will never, I will never, by the cleverness of our ingenuity, convince someone that God created the world and that Jesus is the Messiah unless God has, in accordance with grace, God has given them grace, the free gift of grace, the unmerited favor, this eye-opening, worldview, perspective-altering understanding that Jesus and the gospel is true. You say, well, how, how does it look, what does that look like? You believe. How many times have we gone back in, in this, in this uh, study in Romans to John 1.12? But to as many who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. I have felt like I have a repetitive disorder over the last few months with this. But let me ask you for the umpteenth time again, are you amazed that it's so simple? Are you amazed that he's done all the work? Are you amazed that that work is the crucifixion of his son as the penalty for our sins so that he could impute, take his credit of his righteous, perfect life and give that to you? Aaron and Bob and I were talking about this this last week, the, the cyclical repetition of how often Paul describes and explains sola fide in these three chapters. We just kind of say, why, why, why so much repetition detail, restating, reformulating, re-explanation? Why so much? We have to assume that we need that much, Right? It's not enough, according to Paul, to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and say, oh, got that, now let's go into other doctrines. Paul wants to say, no, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain to you. I'm going to illustrate to you. I'm going to give you another illustration. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to bring the confluence of these things together. It is all by grace, grasped through faith. And if it sounds like the last few months have been repetitive, you are listening well. And it's not over yet. We still have more to go in chapter 4. Look down at chapter 24, because we're going to come back. Remember I said we're going to come back to this resurrection? You believe in him who... Can God raise the dead? Who raised our Lord from... Lord Jesus from the dead. Everything in the Christian faith is built on that resurrection. But we'll not steal from that passage for this week. That'll be in, in just a few. Do you, have you believed? The question isn't, have you been given God's grace? You can't do anything about that. The question is, will you believe? Will you believe the gospel? That God would credit Jesus' righteousness to you, take your sin and die for it on the cross, and prove that he was the one who could do that by being buried and come back to life from the dead. Will you, believe, will you believe it? Do you believe it? And if you do, is that important enough to tell other people that they can believe it and should believe it as well? Father, give us, give us deeper and richer appreciation of this. I'm humbled by how many ways, how many different angles you take 
Holy Spirit to instruct us about this great doctrine. The lengths to which you go to explain and illustrate this must imply that this is a difficult doctrine for us to grasp, to believe, to hold in view, to keep in mind. So teach us the lessons of this great doctrine where we see that faith alone and grace alone come together in our salvation. And that faith is in accordance with, in concert with, in confluence with grace. It seems so trite, Father, but thank you. Thank you for demonstrating your grace in the lives of those who would believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.